Okay, podcast listeners, welcome back. Episode 43, the second installment in our effort to catch up to our Oklahoma Supreme Court opinions from 2023. We're going to cover eight cases today. Jana, hello. I'm here. I'm here. (laughs) All right. Good. Let's see. Where are we going to start? We're going to start with Jana. And 2023 OK47 Norris v. Poole. Over to you. Over to me. So Norris versus Poole is the second case issued by the court this year dealing with what I would call a non-probate asset. And the first case came out back early in the year, 2023 OK7, Gray versus Fidelity Brokerage Services. And in that case, the court said that involved a beneficiary designation on some retirement accounts. And the court said in that case that substantial compliance was the test moving forward with regard to whether or not the beneficiary designation had been properly changed. And so we have another case dealing with that. And in this case, the decedent had an IRA account and she had named some of her cousins as equal beneficiaries on the account. And at the time that she had done that, she was estranged from her son. As you might guess, the decedent and her son have now reconnected and they did so prior to her death. And she decided that she wanted to name him as her primary beneficiary on her IRA policy. So she is not in great health and she starts this process and she fills out the change of beneficiary form and and she sends it in naming the son as the primary beneficiary. She then gives them a follow-up call, the company that manages it, and tells them that she forgot to state on the form what a relationship was with the contingent beneficiaries. And so the company receives the change of beneficiary form. They reject it because there's a number of things that are missing and some errors in it. And they notify her and tell her that they can't accept the form as it is written, and they send her a new form. She tells them, okay, I'll get it corrected and send it back to you. She does get it corrected and puts it in the mail. And then she dies before they receive it and actually make the change administratively. And so after she dies, then, of course, her son and the cousins that were previously named both say, hey, this this is our money. And so a suit is filed. The company doesn't pay out to anybody And so we go through district court and they say it goes to the cousins because the company hadn't received it and actually made the change by the time she died. The Court of Civil Appeals affirms and the court takes this case and they reverse and they cite the Gray case from back earlier in the year. Then they say, We are sticking with this doctrine of substantial compliance when the owner has done all in his or her power to effect a change of beneficiary. And after his death, there are only ministerial acts that remain to be performed. So here they say that this falls in line with that. She took all the steps that she thought she could take to make this change. And just because they didn't receive it, and actually make the change before she died didn't necessarily mean that she didn't have the intent to change the beneficiary. And so they say that the son is entitled to the funds of the IRA account. This is a decision by Justice Winchester, not a unanimous decision. It's 6-2. And there is a separate writing from the Vice Chief Justice, Justice Rowe, and then also from Justice Darby here. So obviously, if you have a case where this is an issue, this is a legal issue that has come up twice now just this year. So you're going to want to take a look at these two cases and see how the facts of your case compare and contrast to the facts in Gray and now in Norris. All right. Interesting. So now we move to a world uh, from death to birth. 
and we're going to talk about <laughs> adoption, <laughs> other end of the spectrum. This case that I'm about to discuss is 2023 OK48 in the matter of adoption of LBL, a case that is coming out of Cherokee County. And there are two themes in the case, I think. The first is the tension between the competing principles of parental rights and the due process of parents versus the best interest of the child when it comes to adoption proceedings. And then the other thing at issue is whether or not an adoption can be granted over the objection of a parent or without the parent's consent. And generally the answer is no, but there's a couple of exceptions that are at play in this case. So those are the two kind of overarching themes here. To touch on the second, the two exceptions to the consent requirement for adoption, they're statutory and they're in Title 10. The first exception is that if a parent for a period of 12 consecutive months out of the last 14 months immediately preceding the filing of a petition for adoption has willfully failed, refused, or neglected to contribute to the support of the minor, then that is an exception to the general requirement of parental consent to adoption. The second exception at issue here is whether the parent has during that same time period, 12 consecutive months out of the 14 months preceding the filing of the petition, failed to establish or maintain a substantial and positive relationship with the minor. So those are two justifications for adoption without parental consent. And the facts in the case that we apply to to those exceptions are of course, as is often the case in these adoption cases that we get opinions on, the facts are just, just tragic. The child was born with a dependency on methamphetamine and PCP. And the father had been convicted of assault and battery in the presence of a minor. The mother's life is just a, you know, an ongoing unfolding of one tragedy to the next, the child ends up in the custody of an aunt and uncle. And those folks are appointed the emergency guardians of the child and then eventually granted full guardianship. Sometime later, they decide to petition for adoption. So they, they're wanting to move from just the permanent guardians to the adoptive parents. There is really not much discussion of the father in the case vis-a-vis -vis the adoption proceeding. I'm left to assume that he must have consented. The issue is that the mother did not consent. And so the district court looks at the two exceptions to parental consent and rules that basically they both apply. And so they grant the adoption over the mother's objection. The case then goes to the Court of Civil Appeals. They actually reverse the trial court and they get kind of hung up on this tension between due process rights of the mother versus best interest of the child. It seems pretty clear from the facts that the best interest of the child is definitely to be with these adoptive parents and not the mother who's really made no since birthing this child with an addiction to PCP and methamphetamine, things are really not progressed from there. The mom has continued to have you know, struggle after struggle with the law and substance abuse and poverty and domestic violence. And But the Supreme Court then takes the case and they reinstate the uh, ruling of the trial court. They vacate the Court of Civil Appeals and they do so basically hanging on one of these two exceptions. The exception about failure to provide financial support, the Supreme Court says that's not the answer here because in the guardianship case, the child support of the mother was held in abeyance, essentially. So she really wasn't legally required to provide support during the relevant you know, time window. So that's not a sufficient justification in this case for 
granting an adoption without her consent. So they kind of throw out that exception, but then, but then they look at the one based on the failure of the parent to establish and maintain a substantial and positive relationship with the child for a period of 12 consecutive months out of the last 14 months before the filing. And the Supreme Court says that they believe the trial court was correct and and finding that that exception was met and that it's in the best interest of the child for the adoption to be granted. The little wrinkle in the facts there were that, by and large, the mother had made no effort to be involved in the child's life. The only exception to that was she had asked at one point to have FaceTime visitation with the child, and the guardians allowed that. And there was one instance of the FaceTime, and that resulted in the child, who was still a toddler, harming himself. After his only FaceTime visit with the mother, uh, the child pulled out his hair, hit and slapped himself, scratched his face, and hit his head on a wall. So from that point on, the child's counselor advised the guardians that it was not in the best interest of the child to have any further FaceTime contact with the mother. And so they didn't allow any FaceTime contact after that. That then became an issue with respect to the mother's failure to maintain a positive and substantial relationship under that one exception that we discussed. And the Court of Civil Appeals kind of really sunk their teeth into that and said, well, the mother was not allowed to have FaceTime contact. And so her due process rights were violated. We can't use that exception because it wasn't as if she, you know, didn't attempt to ask for FaceTime. She wasn't allowed to have the FaceTime. And the Supreme Court kind of went in on the other side of that balancing test and said, well, best interest of the child is really what kind of trumps here. And other than this FaceTime thing, you know, there were lots of other opportunities for the mother to try to be involved. And she really showed no interest or effort. So if you practice in you know this area, it's probably an interesting case to take a look at because there's quite a bit of discussion about this balancing of the due process rights of a parent and the best interest of the child. And man, these are difficult cases. I can't I can't imagine how difficult these must be for the the lawyers, the trial courts, the appellate courts trying to sort through this stuff. No winners in these, but that's how this one came out. The adoption was over the mother's objection was approved and hopefully things look up from here for young LBL. He or she got off to a rough, rough start in life. Next case is also mine, and it also involves children. This one is 2023-OK49 in the matter of SJW. This is what I would call a McGirt-adjacent case, (laughs) jurisdiction case with some McGirt flavor. And this one is a dispute over the deprived adjudication of a Indian child, and it's a jurisdictional question. The nuance here is that the child is an Indian child, but is a Muscogee Creek Nation member and was living on the Chickasaw Nation. So member of one tribe living on another tribe. The Indian Child Welfare Act, the federal law, is implicated according to those who are opposed to this deprived adjudication, because they say Indian child living on Indian reservation, the district court, in this case being Carter County, has no jurisdiction, and this deprived adjudication should be thrown out. And the state is arguing that Indian Child Welfare Act does not require that in this case. It does not grant exclusive territorial jurisdiction to either the Chickasaw Nation or the Muscogee Creek Nation because the child is not a member of the tribe whose reservation child was living. Clearly, if this had been a Chickasaw Nation member living on the Chickasaw Reservation, Indian Child Welfare Act would have given exclusive territorial jurisdiction to the Chickasaw Nation to adjudicate any issues regarding you know whether this is a deprived child or not, but that's not what we got here. And the court goes into the distinction between territorial jurisdiction and subject matter jurisdiction and, and basically says Indian Child Welfare Act deals with territorial jurisdiction. 
and it wasn't implicated here because of the facts that I've gone through. The district court in Carter County has subject matter jurisdiction, and their finding of deprivation in this case is affirmed. There were some other issues about that weren't jurisdictional in nature about some delays in the adjudication hearings and whether that deprived the parents of some due process rights, but the court just uh, does away with those arguments as well. I think the meat potatoes here is the jurisdictional issue. So bottom line, just because the child is a member of the nation and is living on a reservation, that does not grant the reservation's nation exclusive territorial jurisdiction unless the child is a member of the same nation on whose reservation they are living. If you'll remember, towards the tail end of last year, there were three cases that came out from the court involving what I would call McGirt-related issues in domestic cases. So those were hotly debated internally, I think, based on the number of writings that were issued in those cases. Sounds like this probably is not anything that's any easier to resolve. So we will see what else comes from the court in the next few months and years with regard to these types of jurisdictional issues. Yes. And I will say that there was nobody on the other side of this one at the court. We had one, two, three justices concurring in the results, one, two, three, especially concurring with a very short separate writing, but nobody dissented. That's pretty consistent with those three cases that came out at the end of last year. There were a lot of concurring in result type writings, but nobody really was getting there in the same way on these cases. So an interesting area of the law that continues to develop and not an easy area of the law to decipher and sort through. So, And going back to my adoption case from a little bit earlier, I, I failed to mention that that was actually a 5-4 result in that case. Justices Cogger, Combs, Gurch, and Darby dissent. And Justice Darby joined by Justice Combs, writes a dissenting opinion. Those those four justices were concerned, thought, thought the majority had not drawn the balance in the right place between best interest of the child and due process rights of the mother. They were concerned about the fact that the mother was denied the right to have the continuing FaceTime visits and whether or not that should have precluded the court from using the exception about failure to maintain meaningful contact as the basis for allowing adoption without consent of the mother. Sorry, sorry to jump around, but I thought that was interesting that that was such a close case. Okay. Well, sounds like there's lots of debate going on. <laughs> yeah, that's that was a not a typical group of dissenters. <laughs> that was kind of a blend. Usually those folks are not on the same side of some of the close cases. So interesting. Okay. I think, am I up next? You are up next. Okay. So speaking of difficult areas of the law to navigate with not entirely clear how to get there discussions, we come to the next opinion, 2023 OK50, in the matter of the estate of Parker. As the court revisits the issue of the pre-termitted heir. Oh, uh, <laughs> it's been a, it's been a, a lot of pre-termitted heir opinions in the last couple of years. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Maybe we, I don't know if it rises to the level of a soapbox issue, but I think it would not hurt anyone's feelings other than maybe the lawyers who are litigating all these cases for the legislature to revisit the pre-termitted heir statute. I mean, preach it, you know, <laughs> legislature needs to get involved here and do away with the statute because here's the deal. I mean, we're seeing published opinion. I mean, this is now the fourth published opinion in three years from the Supreme Court. And there have been several published opinions from the Court of Civil Appeals also on pre-termitted air issues, one of which 
I was a loser in, but we will not talk <laughs> about that one um, on this episode. So we're seeing a lot of those on the back end, but if you practice in this area, I think this is an issue that comes up a lot and maybe is coming up even more as we are in the days of the online creation of wills and things like that. Because a lot of these websites, you know, it's like an it's a national type website. They don't look at each state and what the law might be on pre-terminated heirs in Oklahoma. And so that's not familiar, you know, when they populate these wills, it doesn't know that you've got to name, you know, your children specifically and don't unintentionally leave them out. And so we get intakes on these issues more frequently than we want to deal with, frankly, and trying to navigate it on the front end with the case law in the state that it is in right now. Not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that it is not entirely clear how you are supposed to resolve these on the front end. This is definitely an issue that is ripe for the legislature to take a hard look at. I don't think a lot of states have this law. It's kind of strange. I mean, I think it's a statute that probably dates back to like statehood. Yes, it does. And kind of the scene setter here is if you write a will and you don't specifically name your children, or if you have a deceased child, the children of your deceased child in the will somewhere, then the law presumes that you forgot about them and that otherwise you would have provided for them. And so they get to step, come in and, and take a share, an intestate share. But do they? <laughs> that's, what, that's what the statute says. Well, you, go ahead. Let me just turn it over to you. <laughs> Tell us what the court has most recently Thank done. You. That was a very excellent setup for the Parker case that we're going to discuss because does the pretermitted heir get his or her intestate share of the estate. That is what I believe (laughs) the statute says. So, and just to follow up, there's a lot of people also who write handwritten wills. Okay. So the holographic will, and and they don't realize that they still, even in a holographic will, have to follow the pre-terminated heir statute. So that's where this case falls. This is a handwritten will by Mr. Parker Mr. Parker has two daughters, and then he also has a brother. And so he writes this handwritten will, and he says that he's sick. He's had multiple heart attacks and strokes. And because of that, he's writing this will, and he owes to his brother what he will receive in a settlement from workers' comp upon his death. And so it says, I'll read it verbatim. I more than owe my bro, Herman, what I will receive in my settlement from my workers' comp upon my death, wish it to be given to him. Nowhere else, there's only one sentence before that in the handwritten will, and so nowhere in the will are the two daughters mentioned or named. Here's the kicker, though, okay? You know, Mr. Parker out of Pittsburgh County, probably, you know, small town guy. The settlement for the workers' comp, eight hundred fifty grand. Wow. So, yeah, we got to figure out <laughs> how the 850K is going to be split here. And I think that's what, and Justice Cogger points this out in her separate writing, I think that's what makes this case difficult. Okay, so, of course, the residue of the decedent's estate is not addressed in his handwritten will, and it is only worth about $15,000. Okay, so the daughters come in and they file petition for letters of administration. The brother files a motion to dismiss. So the trial court consolidates everything. The holographic will is what they're looking at to determine whether that should be admitted to probate. And so nobody's disputed that the will is valid. There were some arguments below as to whether the daughters were pretermitted, but as it gets to the Supreme Court, the brother has abandoned that argument. So the analysis in this case does not deal with whether the daughters are pre-termitted heirs. And so that's what really the three cases that came out in 20 and 21, that's really where those cases landed. You know, it was the three opinions that set forth the four ways, essentially, or five ways that a testator can intentionally disinherit a child. And so the court compared the facts in each of those cases with that test. We don't have any of that here because by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, that argument that he's basically conceded that the daughters are pre-termitted. 
the question that the court analyzes in this case is, okay, well, now how is the estate distributed? Because just like you and I have said, our understanding was that if the two daughters are pretermitted heirs, then they get their intestate share of the estate, which here would be 50% each, right? Two daughters. The court says, well, we're not sure about that. So they look at section 132 and they also look at section 133. And that's really what this case is about is how those two statutes work together. And the court here says that section 133 is intended to modify section 132 because it specifically provides for the manner of allocating the estate assets to satisfy an award to pretermitted heirs. So then the court kind of walks through it and then they say, well, okay, so it looks like maybe the daughters get half of the estate, but then if we do that, then what about this specific bequest to the brother? And they say, we think there's language in 133 that specific bequests can be exempted from the apportionment to the pretermitted heirs. And the trial court then can approve a different apportionment consistent with the testator's intent. They also mention here that the residue of the estate is de minimis. And so if that's all that the two daughters get, you know, they basically get about seven grand each. And they don't think that's fair either under 132. And that's not what 132 allows for. So the court here, the majority says, we believe that to give full effect to all of the relevant statutes, the matter should be remanded for the trial judge to consider the appropriate estate division in light of section 133. So good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) There's a couple of separate writings here. This is not a unanimous decision. Justice Rowe who's joined by the Chief Justice, Justice Kane, and Justice Keene, write a dissent here. And Justice Rowe sees the situation similar to the way that I believe we understood the law, which is that Section 132 states that children unintentionally omitted from a will must receive the same share in the estate of the testator as if the testator had died intestate. Per the intestacy statutes, the testator's daughters are each entitled to one half of the testator's entire estate. And then he says he doesn't think 133 can apply to a specific bequest to a collateral heir. So he says that the way the majority has framed this, it prevents the testator's daughters from receiving what they're explicitly entitled to under the statute. Justice Cogger also writes a specially concurring opinion And she doesn't necessarily disagree, but she thinks that the majority has has struggled here because of the amount of the specific bequest. She says, if the testator had said, I want my brother to have the painting that I bought on our trip to Santa Fe because we had such a good time on that trip, I want him to remember it, there would be no problem interpreting the statute. Apparently, it's the amount of the specific bequest that troubles the majority. What I will note is that, and again, perhaps this was not an issue briefed by the parties in any of those cases, but in the Rogers versus the State of Pratt case, which was the 2020 OK27, for any of you that are keeping track, this is the case where the lady had the son and he was not mentioned in the will. And then she specifically gave her entire estate to about 10 other people. And he comes in and files as a pretermitted heir and says he gets everything. And the court agrees. And in the last paragraph, they say that there wasn't sufficient evidence to show that the only child was intentionally omitted as a pretermitted heir. And as the only child of the testator, he takes the entire estate according to the laws of intestate succession. So it's not clear to me. And maybe, you know, there's probably there certainly are are folks who are are smarter than I am that can figure this out. But at first blush, there's it's not clear to me how this is any different. So I don't know. Those smarter people that can figure it out does not include me either. Then (laughs) that's not saying much, but. I mean, it's to the point that I, I thought I understood what a pre-tremitted error was and what the result was. And I couldn't, in good conscience, 
tell a client what the result was going to be or what the law was at this point. Yep. I agree. I'm not entirely sure what we're supposed to do on the front end. If you do probates, frankly, and you're trying to advise a client, you know, when you think that there could be a pre-terminated error issue here, it's not entirely clear to me how you move it forward. And, you know, how do you, how do you plead it? Yeah. When you file, the how do you plead it? Yes. Mm-hmm. How do you plead it when you file your petition for probate? How do you distribute the estate? Is it a duty? On the court, on the trial judge to flag it in your pleading, you say the person has three children. Those children are not named in the will. Is it the duty of the trial court at that point to flag that and determine if they're pre-termitted? If nobody brings it up, do the pre-termitted heirs actually have to file an objection? Is it a duty on the court? I don't know the answers to these questions, but there are some cases floating around out there from the Court of Civil Appeals that indicate it might be a duty of the court to bring this up and to distribute the estate accordingly. So, well, and just going back to like back back to first principles on this thing, I, I guess I'm still going to advocate for just the legislature just cutting this stuff out of the statute because I guess the theory is. You know, if you forget about a child, then you would have intended to provide for them had you known about them. I mean, I guess you've got the issues of like children that you may not know are your children. Maybe you had a child born out of wedlock and you never were aware that they existed. And then they show up at, you know, at the probate stage and say, hey, I'm I'm an heir. I kind of get that there's maybe some need to protect them maybe when they're minors. But once they become, you know, an adult, they really have a, a right to inherit, you know, that we have to protect. Clearly, you could disinherit them if you want to, as long as you do it specifically. So we don't so we don't really even recognize a right for them to inherit because you're, you're allowed to disinherit them. You just do it specifically. I, I don't, it's just, I'm not even sure I understand the public policy behind who we're protecting from what. To even start with, and this really, really old statute from days long gone by when maybe people, society was different and there maybe were some different <laughs> public policies at issue. But I just think it's created so much confusion and that clearly the court doesn't really like the results that it's coming up with. So they're kind of looking for ways to have the results they like better, but it's really straining <laughs> the statutes and the people that practice in this area trying to figure out what to do. So I guess certainly if you're a drafter of wills, you can head all this stuff off by just making sure that you, I mean, well, I know in our forms that we use for wills and we have language that says, if I fail to mention a child or an heir in here, it is my intention to omit them. They should take nothing. You know, does that work? I mean, if if you don't name them by name, if you just kind of as a class say, should I have any heirs out there that would otherwise be pre-termitted? I, I don't, they don't get anything. I guess you could leave them a dollar. I, I don't know, but you can definitely do better on the front end. But the problem is there's so many of these wills, as you suggested, floating around out there that were drafted by lawyers who just, just didn't do a good job drafting or they're, they're holographic and or from other states. I mean, there's all kinds of problems with you end up getting these things walking in the door at the probate stage and you're trying to figure out what's what. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just because a lawyer in a different state drafted it a different way doesn't mean that it wasn't totally valid under that that state's laws. I mean, we've had several circumstances where, you know, it's the will has been from a different state's been brought to our office and we reach out to the lawyer that drafted it and they don't even know that this is a thing in their state. You know, like this is not even on their radar in that state. And then if you think back to some of these published opinions that have come out in the last four or five years, I can think of four of three, four of them that were handwritten wills. And that's what's creating this case law are these handwritten wills, you know, and we do get some of those as well, but those are problematic. Well, I think, I guess my challenge, my challenge to the listeners out there is someone make an argument for why we need this statutory construct at all. I think the burden, the burden is on the proponents of keeping pre-terminated heirs a thing in Oklahoma. (laughs) I'm just not thinking of any good reason that we need to keep it around. I'm also, we've talked about this, I think, in some of these cases, maybe last year, 
who came up with this pretermitted thing? Like, what what is that word? Pretermitted? I think it just means omitted, left out. I don't think it's used in any other context to mean that. So, but anyway, okay. There you have it, folks. The saga continues. Good luck. Godspeed. <laughs> okay. Well, moving out of the world of pretermitted heirs and children and adoption into the exciting world of ad valorem taxation and statutes related thereto. We can dispose of this case pretty quickly and say that the party who lost this one tried to do legal work without a lawyer and they paid the price. Excellent. Yes. So what we have here is a telephone company that is complaining about the valuation that the Oklahoma Board of Equalization established for their property. And they they think they are being required to pay too much ad valorem tax. So they receive notice of the assessment. And under the relevant statute, they have 20 days from the date the notice is prepared, which is a strange way to start a clock. But the statute requires that the notice be mailed within one working day from the date it's prepared. <laughs> it's kind of a weird situation. Why don't they just make the notice start from the day it's mailed? All right. So the notice must have clearly marked the date that it was prepared. It must then be mailed within one working day to the taxpayer. And the taxpayer shall have 20 calendar days. So now we got blending of working and calendar days from the date of the notice in which to file a written complaint. So that's a long way of saying that the complaint must be filed within 20 days from the date the notice's preparation date, as indicated on the notice. Of course, you know what happens here. The taxpayer prepares their own form, which turns out to not even include all the statutorily required information. And they mail it 21 days after the notice was prepared. So it is late. Per statute, the timely filing of the complaint by the taxpayer is jurisdictional. So nothing the court can do to save the taxpayer here. They just missed the day, the deadline. The one area of nuance here is that the rules for the court of tax review at the time that all this is going down were contradictory and out of date with statute. And there was one place in the rules that said the taxpayer had 30 days to mail their complaint. The court does not get hung up on that. They note that they have now fixed the rule for the court of tax review to mirror the statute, which had the statute had been 20 days since 2001. <laughs> and the rule still reflected 30 days now, some 23 years later. But the statute controls, right? Statute controls. And... As it turns out, even what the guy mailed on day 21 was defective in that it did not include all the statutorily required information. So once that was all fixed, when the guy hired a lawyer and they figured out what actually needed to be filed and got it filed, I think they were even beyond the 30 days at that point. So no harm, no foul. Well, for the tax commission, no harm, no foul, right? Or whoever. (laughs) Board exactly. of Equalization. Yeah. Board of Equalization. <laughs> As I think we've discussed in some prior episodes, there was a pretty significant statutory reform to the process for protesting taxes for some of your larger disputes. I think now $3 million are over. Just totally skip over the county and go straight to a, the court of tax review. Apparently, maybe these telephone companies also are handled at the state board of equalization level from day one, not at the county level. But anyway, probably talked more about this than is necessary given a few number of listeners who may actually be involved in any of this ad valorem tax litigation. So moving on, bottom line is the president of the telephone company probably should not have been preparing his own attempts to protest ad valorem tax assessments. Spoken like a true lawyer, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. What we got next? 2023 OK52. Is that next? That's next. All right. That's me. This is Herrera Chacon versus State. And this case 
procedurally is a little bit odd. What I will tell you is that this has to do with the creation of the Service Oklahoma Agency. And within the implementing legislation, the legislature transferred all the powers, duties, and responsibilities previously exercised by the Driver's License Services Division of DPS to Service Oklahoma. And so there is a question here. There were a lot of statutes that were amended in conjunction with this transfer of powers and duties over to Service Oklahoma. And so there are a couple of places where Title 47, the transferring statutes, the language is inconsistent with the existing language that's still there with regard to who's in charge of driver's license services. The court says, look, we see that there are conflicts and inconsistencies between these statutory provisions, but we think that the legislative intent here was clearly to transfer all the powers, duties, responsibilities, you know, regarding driver's license services to Service Oklahoma. And so based on that, and here's procedurally how the court actually addresses this issue, This case was filed and the parties were briefing the case and Service Oklahoma, I believe, files the answer brief in the case. And so then in the reply brief, in a, I think, a motion to strike that was also filed with the reply brief, the driver here, I guess, asks for the answer brief to be stricken because Service Oklahoma doesn't have standing. So that's what's filed, the court then retains it to address this issue and issues this order. And they say, look, these statutes are inconsistent. We think this is what the intent is, but we're denying the motion to strike the answer brief because we do think Service Oklahoma has standing. So that's the order that's issued. The briefing cycle is completed. And in this case, is sent back to the Court of Civil Appeals actually sent to the Court of Civil Appeals for the first time to address the merits of what the appeal was actually about. So this is not an opinion. This is an order. And it's a, looks like, 6-3 decision. No separate writings here. So anyways, kind of an interesting deal. Looks like, again, call to the legislature to maybe do a little bit of cleanup here. All right. Next case is a turnpike-related case. There's been several cases related to the Access Oklahoma program, which is the Oklahoma Turnpikes Authority's program to build some more turnpikes. I think the most controversial of which has been the Southern Extension, as it's called, which goes down in the Norman area. And that some, I think, landowners down in that area of the world File this case in Cleveland County. It is 2023 OK57, Pike Off OTA versus Oklahoma Turnpike Authority. And this case, the plaintiffs, there's a whole whole bunch of plaintiffs, file this case in Cleveland County and challenge the Oklahoma Turnpike's Tyke Authority's basically authority to, to build this southern extension. They have a few different claims for relief. Not long after this case is filed by these plaintiffs, the Turnpike itself files a case asking the court to take original jurisdiction to approve the sale of bonds to finance this Turnpike. Then the Turnpike Authority files a motion to dismiss in this Cleveland County case and says that the Oklahoma Supreme Court has exclusive jurisdiction over this. So basically, these plaintiffs have made these exact same arguments in their protest they filed at the Oklahoma Supreme Court in the OTA's original action there. And this just all needs to be resolved at the Supreme Court level. The plaintiffs in the case in Cleveland County try to kind of get around that by arguing that the statute that gives the Oklahoma Supreme Court exclusive subject matter jurisdiction is unconstitutional. Then they also say that even if the Supreme Court has exclusive jurisdiction to hear the part of it that the statute gives them the power to hear about approval of the sale of the bonds to finance this turnpike, 
We have some other claims, some mandamus claims and injunctive relief claims that are outside the scope of you know what the Supreme Court is supposed to handle per the statute. So we should get to stay in court here in Cleveland County on those things. The Oklahoma Supreme Court's not buying any of it. They say the statute that gives the court exclusive jurisdiction is constitutional, so not a problem there. And also that these plaintiffs have failed to specify any legal duty or obligation that the OTA will violate at some future point in their claims for injunctive and mandamus relief. They have not pled a clear legal right to the relief sought. And furthermore, the relief they sought is under the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court because this court has exclusive jurisdiction to determine the OTA's authority to construct and operate the proposed turnpike. So, you know, the, what you're asking the court in Cleveland County to do is dependent on what the Oklahoma Supreme Court does and this original action. So the district court was correct to dismiss these plaintiff's claims in Cleveland County and the court will resolve all these issues and the original action at the Supreme Court. This was a uh, unanimous decision, a very brief concurring opinion written by the Vice Chief Justice Rowe. Justice Combs did not participate. And that then would take us to another related case, Hirschfield versus Oklahoma Turnpike Authority. But that case is pending rehearing And I believe Jana is involved in that case. Tangentially involved in that case. That is correct. So we'll leave that one alone. But there's also another Turnpike Authority case that's the most recent case issued by the court, 2023 OK84. We'll get to that one maybe in the next episode. That's the one that Jana, I think, is directly involved in. Yes. Also a rehearing pending. Rehearing pending, but correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the opinion that did come out just a couple of weeks ago basically approves the Turnpike Authority's plans and gives them authority to move forward with their with their Turnpike. But as Jana mentioned, subject to rehearing. So, And I will say, too, for our listeners, when we get to talk about it, the Hirschfield case is actually a really important case for our municipal and governmental attorneys who write agenda items under the Open Meeting Act. And so that one is the case that you're going to want to tune into for an update on where that law has developed. So we will talk about that one when the rehearing is resolved. Yes, that was another, I think, kind of a collateral attack on the Turnpike Authority by embracing an Open Meeting Act, alleged violation of Open Meeting Act and the Turnpike Authority's board meeting where they took action to move this project forward. So it was kind of a collateral attack on on the Turnpike, the Southern Extension through that other statute. All right. So moving from turnpikes to another politically charged area of the law. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 2023 OK60. If you'll recall from the last episode, we talked about the first of these cases, the Oklahoma Supreme Court's decision to find that there is a constitutional right in the Oklahoma Constitution to have an abortion if it is necessary to preserve the life of a pregnant woman. So this is the second case that came out that I mentioned last week. This is also Oklahoma Call for Reproductive Justice versus state. And here, there are two more statutes that are at issue. Senate Bill 1503, which prohibits abortions after detection of a fetal heartbeat, except in a case of a medical emergency. Medical emergency is not defined in this statute, and there's no severability clause that the court points out here. HB 4327 is a total ban on all abortions unless the abortion is necessary to save the life of a pregnant woman in a medical emergency or the pregnancy is the result of rape, sexual assault, or incest that's been reported to law enforcement. Medical emergency is defined in this statute to mean a condition in which an abortion is necessary to preserve the life of a pregnant woman whose life is endangered by a physical disorder, physical illness, or physical injury, including a life-endangering physical condition caused by arising from the pregnancy itself. 
So the court says here that we have addressed this issue recently, and they say that both of these statutes are also unconstitutional. Senate Bill 1503 provides even more extreme language than those found unconstitutional in the first Drummond case. And so under principles of stare decisis, it also fails. And then House Bill 4327, the court says, uses identical language as one of the statutes called into question in the first Drummond case. And so under stare decisis, it is also unconstitutional. Justice Darby concurs specially here, and he says if we were starting from scratch and we had not issued the first case, the first Drummond case, then this might be a different result, but he is going to rely on stare decisis to agree with the majority here. A separate writing from Justice Keene and a separate dissenting opinion from the Vice Chief Justice here And he says that he's not sure how the court gets there with these two statutes. He says that the first, well, the statute that doesn't define medical emergency, he thinks that allows for a physician to have the discretion to determine whether the life of the pregnant woman is at risk. And so he believes that that might save this statute here because there is some discretion, he thinks, to give the physician the authority to help make that decision. Anyways, again, this is a hot button issue. This is an area of the law that will continue to develop, not just in Oklahoma, but across the 50 states now that this is an issue that has been put squarely back into the state legislatures and state courts. Stay tuned. Okay, well, I think that will do it for this episode. We have eight cases left to get caught up. So be on the lookout for the next installment in the next week or so, so that we are all caught up and ready to go when the court gets back into the full swing of things in early September. Janet, any final thoughts or closing remarks? (laughs) I'm going to go two weeks in a row here with no closing remarks. Man, I don't know. (laughs) World coming to. Okay. (laughs) Till next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Jana and I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Oklahoma Appeals, the podcast. If you like what we're doing with the show, you can support our work by checking out our sponsor, OklahomaForms.com. Oklahoma Forms is an AI-enabled drafting platform that helps Oklahoma lawyers draft better documents faster. There are automated forms to help lawyers in many practice areas, from estate planning to real estate. So check it out at OklahomaForms.com. You can find all of our past episodes, whether that be episodes discussing recent Oklahoma Supreme Court opinions or interviews of a number of fascinating guests, ranging from the Oklahoma Solicitor General to a referee from the Oklahoma Supreme Court to many judges from the trial and appellate bench. Find it all on our website, oklahomaappeals.com. Until next time, bye-bye.